This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at getting past the creativity myth, why most of what we think we know about creativity is wrong, the importance of incubating ideas rather than trying to will them into existence, and why you should think twice before you embark on what will likely be an ill-fated attempt to build a better mousetrap. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is David Burkus. David is the author of The Myths of Creativity, the truth about how innovative companies generate great ideas. He's also an assistant professor of management at Oral Roberts University, where he teaches courses on organizational behavior, creativity and innovation, and strategic leadership. David writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Psychology Today, and 99U. His writing has also appeared in Fast Company, Bloomberg Business Week, and an assortment of other publications. In addition to his teaching, David is the founder and host of Leader Lab, a podcast that shares insights on leadership, innovation, and strategy. Welcome to the podcast, David. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So let's start off today talking about one of what would seem to me to be the most important myths of creativity, that it's limited to a special quote-unquote class of worker. Where does that belief come from, and do you think it's justified? Well, I mean, I, I certainly I wouldn't have written a whole chapter on it called Myths if it was justified, right? But right. Um, where it comes from is an interesting question, right? So we have this like distinct like two camps of people, right? People who will call themselves creative or say they're very creative or even like, you know, maybe 15 years ago, suddenly creative was a noun, not just an adjective, right? And so we'll talk about creatives like it's a specific job title or something like that. Um, and I'm I'm not the biggest fan. I mean, it describes one of the primary attributes of what that person has to bring to their job. But I'm not really I'm not really that big on using that as a title because it sends this message that if you're not a creative, then you're not creative adjective. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I mean, truthfully, I don't want to point fingers at a at the school system, but I think probably the best research on this goes back to um, the work of Paul Torrance, who is an educational psychologist. And he found he actually studied sort of children's self-assessments of their creativity and and then actual outward assessments of their creativity, uh, giving them various different tests. And he found that somewhere around fourth grade in the United States, at least somewhere around fourth grade, creativity seemed to drop off. And I think that's really interesting because if you think about the system and the society that we're in, it's right around fourth grade that school becomes a lot less play and a lot more work, a lot less sort of fun and experimentation and a lot more like having to actually memorize stuff and regurgitate it back. And I think what happens so often is that when you put somebody into that system, it becomes easy to learn that, hey, the, the way to get ahead here is to learn the answer quickly and regurgitate it back quickly. It's not to experiment and try things out and, and all of that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I think there's certain places where um, children find sort of refuge, right, in the in art classes or music classes or theater or what have you. And those are places where you're still okay to sort of experiment. And it is sort of a safe haven or, uh, you know, a refuge or something like or a sanctuary 
for um, what is essentially a skill everybody had, but a lot of people sort of had it churned out of them in this system. And, and I don't think it's just the education system. I think it's a society as a whole. Like this is the paradox, right? So we as a society have accomplished, um, I mean, as society, I mean, the human race have accomplished amazing things because we're able to teach the next generation the sum total of everything we know in a short period of time. It doesn't take them their whole life to learn what we learned in our whole life. But in order to do that, you have to make some trade-offs. And one of them is that you experience is a great teacher. And to, to make it quicker, we let other people's experience be the best teacher. And the challenge of that is we cut off the experimentation and the surprise and the things that people learn to keep themselves in creative practice. So fast forward into your college years, you're picking majors and then you're picking jobs all based on this thing that you feel like now you may or may not have because you've fallen in or out of practice. And in reality, what you'll sort of start to say is, you know, if, if you weren't born with it, if you're just not that type of person, then you're off the hook for being out of practice, right? If you believe this idea that it's a certain genetic code or a certain breed or something like that, that makes those people that way and not me, then you're off the hook. Um, and by the way, I also think it's really, really, um, dangerous for people who call themselves a creative to sort of subscribe to this myth because equally dangerous if they just sort of have this certain genetic code, then they're kind of a commodity, right? But if it's a skill, if it's something that develops with practice, then they can get better and thus they can be more and more of this and, and charge more or what have you. So I, I don't think anybody benefits from this false dichotomy between creatives and non-creatives. And, uh, you know, I, we can use it as a noun if we want, but I'd really like that sort of faulty separation to be what we do away with. Right. And you write in the book about how there's even, I believe, a different, uh, classification for taxes for people that are that are labeled quote-unquote creatives and those that are not yeah there's there's certain exceptions and a certain way that you kind of code out when you're a company and you have certain different roles it, it affects things like overtime and taxes withheld and that sort of thing not um not like you know there's a different pay rate or something like that but it is interesting to me that we've gotten we've gotten that far that it's written into the irs tax code that there are certain jobs that require this or, I mean, it, it, the jobs, it doesn't say that there are certain jobs that require it and certain that don't, but that's the underlying message. And that underlying message is what's really dangerous. So contrary to popular belief, creativity is not some touched by the gods type of trait, but instead it's something that you see uh, happening naturally when four conditions are met. Can you share what those four conditions are? Yeah. So the, the, the combinational model of creativity, I, I like it better the way you said it, the four, four uh conditions met. But this comes out of the work of Teresa Immobile, who was um, really, a, a, she's a, an amazing woman, a, a, a really, really good just person, but also a brilliant researcher. And uh, started out as an educational psychologist, now teaches um, people at Harvard Business School how to be more creative. Um, I mean, hopefully she doesn't teach any of the accountants, but everybody else um, how to be more <laughs> creative. <laughs> That's a joke. Um but she, she sort of studied what conditions have to be met in order to have that sort of idea. And what she found is that you have to have um, four different conditions, three of which are sort of um, easy to explain. And the other one, it, unfortunately, is the most important. But the, the first three are you have to have motivation. And as, as she's found and other people have found, intrinsic motivation tends to work better than extrinsic, but it is possible to get those aligned. You have to have expertise. You have to actually know something about it, right? If you're, if you know, um, Frank Geary knows a good amount about physics and that's what allows him to do some amazing things, right? But if he had no clue, then he would never, he might have the idea, but it wouldn't be all that useful because he couldn't execute on it. Um, 
So you have to have motivation, you have to have expertise, and then you have to have what she calls creative thinking skills. You have to sort of know when it's time to come up with lots of crazy ideas, when it's time to sort of narrow them down, what we call convergent and divergent thinking, uh, in reverse order, divergent being lots of ideas, convergent being narrowing them down. You have to sort of be familiar with different techniques. The thing that I think is interesting is this isn't a trait, creative thinking skills, it's a skill, it's something that can be learned and developed. But then the, the most important one is the fourth one, it's the social environment. I sometimes in my talks, I describe it as like, if you think of a Venn diagram of three circles, the, the first three conditions, then the, the social environment is like a big circle around all three of them because it, it also has to be met. And this, the social environment reflects sort of what environment are you in? Are you in that fourth grade classroom where it's easier to just regurgitate the, what you think is the right answer, right? Are you in an organization where you're given time to experiment and try out things? Do they, does that organization celebrate failure or does every risk sort of that doesn't make sense in a P&L statement get um, rejected right off the bat without ever trying it? Does, does your organization allow you to share ideas with other people inside of it, right? So are there silos, et cetera, or does it allow you to even share information with people outside of it? Um, there, I've actually been looking at some really interesting research more recently on non-compete clauses and how those actually hurt both organizations, the, the one you signed the compete clause in and the one that you're going to. Um, because that information isn't being shared. And so it's that social environment that kind of reflects that fourth grade classroom. If it if it's not very supportive of trying out new ideas and experimentation, then you eventually sort of learn that you might still have the great ideas, but you keep them inside yourself and you don't share them. And then gradually you sort of fall out of practice because the system that you're in isn't valuing that. So why bother to hone it? So those are sort of the four, the four models. There's a lot of different research. Um, Amabile actually extended that out and showed how the, sort of those four factors affect innovation inside of organizations and a bunch of different things. But it all starts sort of with those four factors. And, and like you said earlier, that's not being kissed on the forehead by one of the, the divine sisters, the muses, right? And that's not something that sort of gets blessed by the gods. These are things that are accessible to everybody. And let me, let me stick with Teresa Amable for a minute. As you mentioned, she's a professor at HBS, and you cite her work in the, in the book a good bit. What has her research shown about the motivation behind the best art? So this is, I think, one of the most interesting studies around incentives. Um, she looked at, and what's really funny, I actually interviewed her for the book because I had heard about this study somewhere, some in somebody else's talk or in somebody else's book. And there, there, uh, there actually, there wasn't a lot of data. It was just sort of an aside to this experiment that Teresa Mabile once ran. So I contacted her and I sort of grilled her for details on this and a, and a bunch of other things. And, um, eventually what, what I did when I emailed her and told her, you know, I'm writing about this. This is the central um, study in one of the chapters of the book. She said, oh, I'm so glad that you did this because in this experiment, she said she ran this whole experiment and they were really excited about it and they presented it at a conference, which is why there's a record of it happening. And then in between the conference and when they were going to submit it to a journal for publication to put it out into the world, she moved offices and the box with all of her data got lost. So they could never publish the study in a real journal because uh, they had lost sort of all of this data after the conference. But anyway, so here's what happened in, in the um, in the experiment, she she took two she took groups of artists and she, and to some of them she said sort of pick your top um, ten pieces of art that you were commissioned, and your top ten pieces commissioned meaning somebody paid you to do it, and then the top ten that you did just sort of just for fun, and then she took that those artists and those works and she showed them to another group of of artists and art um, directors and museum curators and and sort of experts in the field, and she asked them all to rate um, how. What, how, what good quality these different um, pieces of art were. And it was a bunch of different stuff from paintings to sculptures and what have you. 
And what she found is that consistently, there's a little bit of overlap, but consistently the pieces of art that were created just for fun, just for experimentation, for intrinsic motivation rather than being paid, were consistently judged to be higher quality by a group of experts who had no idea which ones were paid for and which ones weren't. And I think this is really interesting because we, we so often, we, we even use the term kind of playing around with something to mean it's not as serious as work, work we're being paid to do. And yet a lot of times this is a hint that when we, when we are intrinsically motivated to do something and someone is, is paying us then to do it on top of that, if the incentives aren't aligned properly, we can end up looking at that end product that we have to, to, um, to do, we can end up sort of letting the work suffer because we're trying, we're worried about how much money we're going to get paid. We want to make the client happy sometimes. So we get paid maybe extra money. There's just a bunch of different things that when you introduce money into the picture, the intrinsic motivation is diminished largely because the, the actual artist, the person doing the creative work or even the individual, you know, sort of worker in a, in a cubicle factory, right? When they have to worry about money, they can't focus on the work. And so whatever intrinsic motivation is there now has to compete with all of these other distractions that are going on because we've attached that economic system to it. And that's not to say that we can't use incentives uh, to, to heighten people's motivation and intrinsic motivation. In fact, the, the best way to describe it actually is to stole it from my friend Dan Pink, who talks about so often we look at carrot and sticks and those are sort of if-then motivators. If you do this, then I will give you that. And that's the commissioned art from Teresa Mobile's study. And the best way to align incentives with uh, with intrinsically motivated work is to do now that incentives, right? So now that you've done this, we're going to celebrate your work and we're going to, we're going to give you things. We're going to give you awards, et cetera. And, and what that does is not only heighten the intrinsic motivation of the, the person, because now the next time they're working on something, they know that the world cares, that the world will take care of them, et cetera. But also everybody around who sees that we're doing that now that reward is also seeing that, oh, the economic system rewards me doing things I'm intrinsically motivated to do. And therefore it doesn't sort of create that distraction. Okay. And, and let me ask you about the expert myth. So the book again is the myths of creativity and the structure essentially is each chapter is about a different myth that, that, uh, you know, people have come to believe about creativity over time. One of the myths is the expert myth. So what does the expert myth teach us about the level of expertise necessary for companies or teams to solve tough problems? So this is a really interesting myth because um, our, our whole system is built on the idea that uh, the harder a challenge is, the more you need to give it to an expert, right? The, and we even, we pay people that way. The more experience you have, the more they we pay you. And we've known for probably two decades, there have been studies that show that people are consistently underpaid in their early on in their career and overpaid later in their career compared to the value they bring to the organization. And it's, it's kind of because of this, because the interesting thing about creative work is that as your expertise goes up in the, in the early stages, the quality of your work and the amount of your work goes up, but it levels off. It does sort of an inverted U or a bell curve um, kind of distribution and it starts to drop. And by the time that you're sort of, this is ironic, by the time you're sort of celebrated as an expert, you've actually already done your best work. There's a joke in physics that if you don't do Nobel Prize winning work by the time you're 30, you should retire and just go teach at a university. You're done, right? Which is really mean because 30 is like the new 12. <laughs> so, um, so, but, but there's actually some truth to it. If you look at the, the, the ages of the people who won the Nobel Prize, when they published the study that won it, they actually aggregate around 30 years old, give or take a couple of years. It's really kind of interesting. And what's going on, we think, is that it, it, creative work involves sort of 
if you want to say two rates that you can measure the output of somebody's creative work in, you can measure sort of their ideation rate, which is the rate of ideas that they're having, and then their elaboration rate, which is the rate of ideas that they're actually sort of sending out into the world. And if you measure those two things, you actually only find that inverted U in one of them. So as your expertise goes up, your ideation rate goes up. You consistently keep having ideas, but your elaboration rate is what levels off and goes down. You, you start executing on less and less ideas. And, and what we think is the reason for this is that as you're coming up with lots and lots of different ideas, the more experience you have, the more those ideas connect to stuff you've already tried and didn't work so you don't bother to elaborate or experiment with that crazy idea, right? So to go back to our 30-year-old physicist or hopefully our 29-year-old physicist, by the way, Albert Einstein was 26 when he published the paper that won him the Nobel Prize, right? So he's, you know, ahead of the curve. Um, if we go back to them, they've learned enough at this point. They've got a PhD. They're maybe in a postdoc. Maybe they're in their first or second year in a university. They know enough about the field to understand how it works and to come up with lots of really good quality ideas, but they don't know enough about it to know which, which ideas they shouldn't try. They don't have enough experience to sort of prejudge ideas before they experiment. So they try. And to be honest, they waste a lot of time. They, they don't get there to the end result as efficiently as people with expertise do. But the reason that them wasting that time is good is that every once in a while, they experiment with something that everybody else didn't see or, or worse, saw and chose not to elaborate on, they elaborate on it, and then they win sort of the Nobel Prize. And so sort of, the, they actually, some, most of them do win the Nobel Prize. It's not a sort of thing. Well, <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could say that the economists who win the Nobel Prize only win the sort of one because it's not the real Nobel Prize, but that's a different, that's a totally different monologue. Um, <clears throat> so so what, what we have happening here is this idea that the more expertise we have, sometimes we just don't um, exercise our creativity as much, not because we're not having ideas, but because we're not experimenting on them. And this isn't sort of a death sentence. It is possible to sort of keep that beginner mindset. There's a lot of people who out throughout history have sort of done that or willing to sort of go into fields where they're not the expert and try things out um, or willing to bring in people who aren't experts and, and not prejudge their ideas as crazy and experiment with them, right? And so there are a variety of different ways to keep that kind of beginner mindset throughout uh, your entire career and thus not kind of fall victim to this expertise myth. Okay, got it. So let me ask you about W.L. Gore. They're a company that you write about in the book that's been in the news some recently uh, in, in articles that I've seen about Zappos and their shift to holacracy. So W.L. Gore is a $3 billion company with essentially no operating structure. What are some of the products W.L. Gore has introduced to the world and what can other companies learn from the way they operate? Yeah. So, I mean, pretty much all of us in the developed world have interacted with a W.L. Gore product at some time. They've they've invented everything from, I mean, the Gore-Tex fabric is probably their most famous. Um, it's um, kind of a fleece insulating fabric that's also waterproof. It's in a variety of different outdoors stuff. But even if you're not outdoorsy, uh, you probably flossed your teeth with Glide Dental Floss, which is owned by Procter & Gamble, but was invented by Gore. If you play guitar, you know that the best domestically made guitar strings are Elixir guitar strings. Those were made by W.L. Gore. Spacesuits and uh, I mean, every, literally everything from dental floss to spacesuits has been sort of invented by them. And they are, I think a lot of people look at what's going on at Zappos right now and look to companies like W.L. Gore. Uh, in truth, I don't know enough about the holacracy system um, to speak to whether or not it's effective. But what's effective about W.L. Gore's system is that, like you said, they have a very, very limited management structure. Uh, they're a, they're a, a formal corporation. They're an Inc. incorporated company. Um, so they have to have a board of directors and they have to have a president. And then beyond that, everybody just has this sort of term associate. 
And uh, what, what happens in this sort of situation is if you have a project idea, so a new product you want to develop, or even just an internal process that you want to refine, right? This applies even to sort of the HR function. If you have that idea, then you go about recruiting people to join your team. And it doesn't have to be joining your team sort of full time, but just spending a little bit of time working on those various different projects. And I should say that just because they don't have managers doesn't mean they don't have management as a function, planning, budgeting, et cetera. But that is done by the people who have managed to persuade others to sort of join them in their cause. And as long as what they found is that as long as they sort of stay true to the overall mission and vision and values of W.L. Gore, then we can give a lot of freedom to those teams of people because the the team is going to keep the sort of individuals in line. Right. And at the same time, what they're going to experiment in with is in line with what the overall company wants to do. And the other thing that it does is it, it like we were talking about earlier, it sort of leverages everyone's intrinsic motivation. Right. You, you have to work on something. Yes. But you don't have to work on what you're told to work on because there's no one there to tell you what to work on. You're given the chance to work on whatever you sort of want. Right. And I'm, I'm most interested in this because this is uh, there's a, a bunch of different companies that have followed suit. W.O. Gore is probably the most famous. But in the book, I also write about Semco, which is a Brazilian company that actually managed to do the switch. They're probably a better example for what's going on in Zappos because they weren't always a sort of managerless company and then they moved into one. Um, and then obviously Zappos is doing it now, but Zappos is even sort of the first big name company to do it. Valve Software, which makes um, video games and also makes the Steam platform that almost every gamer has bought some product on. It's sort of Steam is like the iTunes of video games, right? You go to it to buy other games. Um, there and so they're a, I think, a two to three billion dollar company that also runs entirely, entirely managerless. And I think the lesson here isn't isn't necessarily like, oh, just throw out all the managers and everybody just manage yourself and and recruit teams. That I mean, that's great if you want to experiment with it. Awesome. I recommend starting small. I mean, Zappos experimented with it on a smaller level before they rolled it out. The lesson to me is that can you find a way to harness everybody's intrinsic motivation rather than giving them orders? Can you find a way where they seek out orders? on what to do that they're already sort of intrinsically motivated to do. Because, I mean, the evidence is clear that they'll do far better quality work and, and more creative work if they're in line with that. I don't think you need a purely and totally managerless company, but that is one way to give people that autonomy. So one of my favorite myths that you write about in the book is the mousetrap myth. Why do you think the quest to build a better mousetrap can be, in and of itself, a mousetrap? <laughs> yeah, the mousetrap myth. My, the mousetrap myth is my favorite myth, although they're like children. You're not supposed to say you have your favorites, even though you do. Um, so here, okay, so the mousetrap myth, the, the name comes from this phrase that as I've, as actually, ironically, as I've traveled all over the world, is not as widespread as I thought it was, which is probably good because it's a terrible phrase. But the phrase is, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door, right? And, and I've actually tried to find who said this. There's a lot of people who have been attributed to saying this, and there's no one who, at least in print, ever took uh, ownership of it. So, you know, clearly everybody who's been attributed to saying this also knows that it's crap, right? Because history, <laughs> history is filled with examples, not only of the mousetrap, but of other sort of metaphorical mousetraps of great ideas that got rejected on their initial sort of showing, right? So the literal mousetrap, the one that everybody who's listening, the one that you're picturing, is a wooden board with a little spring on it and cheese because there's always free cheese in a mousetrap. Although here's a, here's a tip that'll make everybody listening's life better. Peanut butter works better than cheese. I, I learned that when I was speaking to a group of pest control uh, business owners. So <laughs> peanut butter, not cheese. But that mousetrap was invented in 1899. It was invented over 100 years ago. 
1899 is actually an interesting year. It was the same year that Charles Duell, who was the head of the U.S. Patent Office, testified before Congress and said, we ought to close the Patent Office. Everything worthwhile has already been invented. Which I think is sort of, I mean, crazy testament to this power of the mouse myth. So after 1899, every year 400, on average, 400 applications for presumably better mouse traps, people who think they have a better way to, to catch mice, are submitted to the U.S. Patent Office. About 20 of them have developed into commercially viable products. And, you know, that group of pest control people that I told you I was speaking to once before, they, they can actually tell you which one you use in what situation. Some of them really are better than the one we all think of, which is really weird, right? Because this other one is, is 100 years old. It's an outdated technology, and it's the one we all think of, not because it's better, but because it's sort of what we're comfortable with. And and then there's there's all these sort of metaphorical mousetraps that are kind of famous because we love them as examples of like people who are just terrible at recognizing great ideas, right? Xerox invented the personal computer. Kodak invented the digital camera. Neither company ever really took advantage of it. And one of them went bankrupt, Kodak, for not developing it, right? So, so what in the world is going on here? Well, it turns out that for an idea to be really innovative, it has to satisfy two qualities. If you ask 10 different academics on what what is your definition of an innovative idea or creative idea, you'll get, actually, you'll probably get 11 answers because one guy will have a citation to somebody else, right, in the footnotes. But all of them will, will harness around these two words, novel and useful, or some synonym, right, uh, original or practical, whatever, novel and useful, which means that the idea has to be new, it has to depart from the status quo, it has to be different. But at the same time, it has to be seen, sometimes without even getting a chance to try it, it has to be seen as practical, useful, applicable, right? Now, that's really interesting because what do we use to judge whether or not something is useful? Well, the only thing we have is our past experiences. If we're looking at an idea being pitched to us and we're trying to decide whether or not to invest money in developing it, the only thing we have to go on is our past experiences and maybe a teeny bit of data from the first experiments, right? That's it. So... What, what happens is we're actually really terrible at reconciling these two things. Because of that, we have to simultaneously depart from the status quo and use the status quo to judge the idea. And research supports that even, especially in times of uncertainty, we're awful. We might say that we need to think out of the box, right, and blue sky our thinking and brainstorm and do all of the stuff that we want to depart from the status quo. But when the ideas get presented to us, we're, we're terrible at it. We can't recognize them. We just want to go back to the status quo, what we're comfortable, what we know what's always worked before. And I think everybody would agree that like, you know, we haven't really done business in a very um, certain time for, you know, at least a decade, if not two, right? So we don't, we live in a very uncertain time, which is really dangerous for recognizing great ideas, right? Because the research says we're just going to get worse when we have uncertainty. And, and what I, what's depressing to me about the mousetrap myth and one of the positive, you know, constructive criticisms I got about the book was that people were disappointed that I didn't have a solution for this one. And the truth is I don't. Like, I think it starts with, we need like a creatives anonymous, right? Hi, my name is Dave and I'm terrible at recognizing great ideas, right? And we can all just go and sort of have an awareness that when we get presented these ideas. Um, but the other thing is realizing sort of the magnitude of that. Right. And then maybe together collaboratively, this is my sort of call to action for the whole book is that collaboratively we can help figure this out. Because the thing is, I think it affects all of the other myths. There, there are nine other myths that are in the book. And if we solve all of those, that's awesome. But if we can't teach people to recognize great ideas, then we're just getting back to that fourth grade classroom and we're not really getting anywhere. And when I travel around and speak to organizations and conferences, I always get that same thing. I get people that say, hey, we, we want our people to have more great ideas. And the more I look into the research and the more I look into how this is something that's available to kind of everybody, as long as you stay in practice and cultivate it and you build a social environment that supports it, 
I, I realized that, you know, innovation is not an idea generation issue. It's not a problem of having our people have more great ideas. I think most of the major challenges that we face in the world today, we've got enough brain power in the world today to solve. We need to get better at recognizing and testing out the ideas I already, that we already have. Whether it's the social environment thing or the expertise thing or et cetera, we, we have access to amazing ideas. We just need to get better at sort of recognizing them. We need to get over this kind of mousetrap myth thing. And I wish I could give you like a really, I would have, I could make so much money if I could come up with like a four box model that could fit on a PowerPoint. I could travel around to companies and teach it. But it really just starts with that recognition that as humans, one of the, the psychological biases that we've developed is that we say we love great ideas, but we really don't. And then maybe as, as humans who are also charged with leadership, we can know that when we ask people to think outside the box, which I hope we never ask anybody to do, but that's a totally different issue. Um, but when we ask for great ideas and we get them presented to us, if we can start with that mentality of, I'm really, we're all really bad at judging the value of this idea. How can we test it? How can we figure out if it's true? How can we not rely on our preconceived status quo ideas of whether or not it'll work? Then I think we can really let that loose and we can get way better at generating ideas. And that's where we, we need to go. I wish I could map it out because I could make billions of dollars mapping it out, but I can't. I can tell you this is something that we need to work on, that every, every leader of every organization should be asking how good are we at recognizing the ideas of our people and what do we need to do to get better at that. So you're one of the reasons why you can't create that matrix, David, is you're a, you're a busy man. You're in addition to an author, you're a, a professor and also a podcast host, a fellow podcast host. Yeah. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Uh, the podcast is called Leader Lab and it's spelled L-D-R-L-B. I listened to the most recent episode on the way into work today and it was great. Uh, oh, nice. You've had some of the same folks that we've had on the podcast, so it's nice to, to see a uh, podcasting brother in arms. What do you cover on the podcast and where can listeners of the Innovation Engine find your podcast? Yeah, awesome. So three words, leadership, innovation, and strategy. Leadership, innovation, and strategy. Particularly like we, we love to look at the intersection of when those things, you know, what are the leadership lessons? How do we lead innovation, right? What are the, what are the innovative strategies leaders need to know? Whatever, whatever sentence you can come up with, it uses all three of those words. We love. The other, the other thing that we just sort of have a bias for research, right? So we're all about kind of evidence-based leadership. So where can we, I mean, if you read the mousetrap myth, you know, I mean, we talked about Teresa Mobile and a bunch of different studies. If you read the whole book, you, you know that like I, I am a, I nerd out on research and I love it when we can cross that bridge between research and practice and give practitioners something that's really sort of meaningful. So, um, the bet, honestly, the best place to find it is just davidberkuscom slash podcast. Uh, for a long time, um, the reason he hesitated, by the way, when he said it's called leader lab is that we spell it L D R L B which is a long, long story that involves a trademark dispute and all of that sort of stuff. And I've learned over time that it's easier just to tell people to go to davidberkus.com slash podcast than it is to remember the really weird way to spell leader lab with no vowels. <laughs> okay, nice. And last question, I'll, I'll give you one that you asked your guest that I listened to today. What are you reading right now? What am I? So I just finished um, Work Rules by Laszlo Bach, which is, I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. So Work Rules is a, um, a book by Google's uh, head of HR, although they call it people operations, but they're, they're senior VP of people operations about kind of what are the people practices that Google uses. I was not expecting it to be as good as it was. It, I, you know, Google's kind of a cliche, right? We talk about them so often that I don't, I don't think anybody wants to hear from, about them anymore, but I mean, clearly they do. It's a best-selling book, so clearly they do. But what I love is that Laszlo, he knows his stuff. Like I, you, normally when you read a book that's sort of a corporate memoir, right, from a senior leader in an organization about how they did it, 
you normally just get the experience and you don't get the data. And they are uh, awesome at making evidence-based decisions. And I really didn't realize that until I read it. So Work Rules by Laszlo Bach is what I just finished. And I have no idea what's coming next. I've got a stack of books that are like waist high and I love, I'd love to think that I read them in order from top to bottom. I don't, I just look at the spines and figure out which one sort of interests me the most, but I literally finished work rules this morning. So I'm in between books right now, I guess, for the next couple of hours. And, and working on your next one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other reasons I was most interested in it is I'm, I'm at uh, 58,000 of the 60,000 or so words that I need for my next book. And so I started thinking, ah, well, I wonder what Google's got for us. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche, but maybe I'll find something uh, original inside of it. And I totally did, which was great. So now I've got to track down Laszlo and, and get him in the book. So. <laughs> nice. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, great talking with you about some of the common myths surrounding creativity and how we can get past them. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, our pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about David Burkus, you can follow him on Twitter at, at David Burkus. That's B-U-R-K-U-S. You can also visit his website at www.davidburkus.com to find out more about his book, The Creativity Myth, download resources related to the book, and become one of the more than 7,000 people that subscribe to David's email updates. Thanks once again to David Burkus for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode, when we're excited to have Dr. Christopher Wasden on the podcast. He's the Executive Director of the Sorensen Center for Discovery and Innovation at the University of Utah. We'll be looking at riding the innovation cycle and talking about why fast, frequent, frugal failure can be a recipe for innovation success, the types of brainwaves necessary for any of us to channel to innovate successfully, and what to expect from the next wave of innovation in the world of healthcare. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.